Good morning, Abundant Life Church. How are you guys doing today? Oh, that was, that was not good. As Aaron mentioned, I'm the lead student pastor. I'm used to a little more energy. So Abundant Life Church, how are you guys doing today? Thank you. Yes. I love interaction. This is going to be a good morning. I want to welcome you. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, my name is Bob Tim. I'm the lead student pastor here at Abundant Life. And I'm so excited to be teaching you guys this morning. And I just want to start off with a little fun fact about me. Is that okay? All right. It's kind of okay. I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I really love bread. Not what you were expecting, I'm sure. I really love bread. I, I grew up, I have some Italian roots in my family. And so, yeah, there we go. We're loud. That's just that's what we do. And I, one of my earliest memories is being at Grandma Betty's house in New Jersey. And she would make me this wonderful spaghetti. Oh, it was amazing. My, my pastas, my spaghettis, my breads, my grains. I love them as anybody with me. All right. We got some bread lovers in here. That is great. Uh, well, hey, I'm wise enough to know that if I have people for me and with me, I have people against me. Where are my gluten-free people at? I know you're there. I know you're there. You can make... Okay, we got some. We got some. They're quieter than the bread lovers. That's okay. There's, there's this tension between the grains folks and the gluten-free folks. And I know this because my wife is gluten-free. And we, we wrestle with this. In our home, we have the, the normal bread in our pantry, the good stuff. And then we have the gluten-free stuff. When I make pasta for us, I've got my pot of regular pasta going and I've got my pot of gluten-free pasta going. My pasta, when it comes out, it's this, this perfect al dente, the, the, the tenderness, the texture, it's so good. I kid you not, when I pour my wife's pasta out of the pot, it's like falling apart. It's like a little gooey and sticky. I can cook pasta. It's not me, guys. It's, it's the pasta. It's, it's just bad. <laughs> this, this past week, I was at a, at a retreat with some of our staff, and I'm making my sandwich come lunchtime. So I'm at the big table. It's like this line that you go through, and I'm making my sandwich, normal bread, of course, and everything else. I get to the end of the line, and I look down to the table where the line began, and I, I see something I wasn't expecting. Uh, somebody on our team was making a sandwich with gluten-free bread. And I, I was, this is the person that I would not have expected to be using gluten-free bread. I don't know what someone has to look like for them to look like they use gluten-free bread. But this person did not look like that. It was the one and, the one and only Bryce Ginther, our Sandy Campus pastor. And if you know Bryce, it just doesn't look like the guy who would use gluten-free bread. So I asked him the question, Bryce, are you gluten-free? To which his response really baffled me to this, to this moment. He said, no, 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 I just wanted to try it. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, okay Bryce. To nobody's surprise, he hated it. It was bad. Now, I don't want to hate on the gluten-free too much, the gluten-free people too much. There's a purpose here. We're in this series we're calling I Am. And it's, we're going through the book of John where there's, there's these seven different I Am statements that Jesus makes. The seven times in the, in the gospel of John, he says, I am, fill in the blank. And we learn these, these incredible insights into who Jesus is. Week one last week, uh, Jeremy said that Jesus said, I am 
the light of the world. And this week, Jesus is going to compare himself to bread. So gluten-free people, buckle in. It's going to be a good ride. I promise there is deep, profound truth when, when Jesus does this. So if you've got your journals with you, go ahead, pull those out. We're in week two. If you want to follow along, follow along and take notes. Uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead, open those to John chapter 6. We're going to park in John chapter 6 today. In this chapter, it, it begins with two very popular miracles. Uh, you don't have to know much about Scripture to have heard of these two things that Jesus did at the beginning of this chapter. Now, the first one is called the, the feeding of the 5,000. This great crowd had gathered around to hear Jesus speak. And come lunchtime, Jesus decides that he's going to provide lunch for everybody. All right? And his disciples kind of freak out a little bit. They're like, uh, Jesus, I don't know if you've looked at our budget lately. That's not going to, the numbers aren't going to add up here. We're not going to be able to make that work. I mean, think about it in our context today. Imagine your spouse or someone in your family today, after service, they, they kind of nudge you and they say, hey, I think that we're supposed to buy lunch today. Kind of nod, yeah, yeah, I think so too. No, no, for everybody. Yeah, that'd be my response too. Um, what? My, my response would be the same as the disciples' response. I'd be like, I'd be like, hun, or, or they would go, Jesus, that's not in the budget. In fact, Jesus, it would take six months wages just for everybody to be able to have one bite. And Jesus, he's like, no, no, don't worry about this, guys. I've got this. I've got this. And, and so Jesus takes a little boy's lunch, a few, a few loaves of bread and some fish, and, and he prays over it and begins to pass it out. And behold, there is enough for everybody to eat. And John feels it's important enough to tell us, and there were leftovers. Now, now this... This miracle is going to be overlooked in, in less than a chapter. So we just got to part for a second here and, and just realize what's happening. Uh, because you, you've probably heard this before and it's like, oh yeah, I know that Jesus fed 5,000. But let me just put a slide up that illustrates how incredible this is. You see the, the physical reality, what should have happened here, uh, what, what should have been the outcome of this story is that six months wages equal one bite per person. That's just what should have happened. But with Jesus, the miraculous reality, what ends up happening, zero wages, everyone eats with leftovers. There was an abundance. There was a miraculous occurrence from Jesus. But that's just the first miracle. The same chapter, the same exact day, it was later on, the disciples leave from here, they cross the Sea of Galilee, and about three to four miles into their journey, Jesus wasn't with them at this point, but they look out in the midst of a storm that was going on, they look out and on the horizon, they see Jesus walking on the water, coming towards them. Not, not a bad day for Jesus, right? Feeds 5,000, walks on the water. And then in the same chapter, we fast forward to the next day. The next day, the crowd realizes Jesus and his disciples are gone. And so they begin searching the land for him, and he's not there. Then they realize, oh, their boats are gone, so they must have left. So they get on their boats, and they go searching after him. And, and you got to pause here to, to realize this is a pursuit. They, they are going after Jesus here. Uh, the text in verse 25 just tells us, 
that when they found Jesus, they asked him the question, hey, Jesus, where have you been? But, but if we just look at verse 25, we miss they had to look after him. They didn't have a, a Google location of where he was. They didn't have their cell phone with GPS. They didn't have the boy band from Waze. They didn't have that. They just had to pursue after him. Eventually, they end up finding him. Now, when we, when we think about the pursuit, think about the pursuit of this crowd. Uh, on the surface, it seems like a really good thing. This crowd had just experienced Jesus. They had witnessed him do something miraculous, something incredible. And now they're seeking after him. On the surface, that looks so good. And we might think, oh, Jesus is going to be flattered. You guys are searching for me. You guys are pursuing after me. That's not what he says, though. Follow along with me. Verse 26. After they've asked the question, they found him, and they say, Jesus, where have you been? This is what he says. Jesus answered them. Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Jesus looks at this crowd that's following him. He's not impressed. He's not flattered. Instead, he, he knows their motives behind why they're following him. And now he's going to challenge and confront those motives. He says, you're, you're looking for me not because of who I am, not because of what I can do. You're looking for me because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. And, and you have to see that these two things are very similar. One of these motives is not good and one of these motives is good, but they sound just alike. Jesus says, you're looking for me not because you saw the sign of what I can do. You're looking for me because you ate the bread. But if you think about it, these are the same thing. It, eating the bread was the sign that he had performed. So what's the difference here? Let, let me put it this way. Jesus is saying, you're not following me because of what I can do, period, because of who I am and what I am capable of. No, no, no. You're following me because of what I can do for you. You're, you're following me because what I have done has benefited you, and that's your motive. That's your reasoning. This reminds me of a guy by the name of Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, he was a 12th century French monk, and he wrote this devotional called The Love of God. And in it, he, he says that there's these four degrees of love for God that we can have. And you can think of these like stages that we progress through throughout our lifetime. And, and the first one is this. He says that we love ourself for ourself. You know, before we ever have an idea of, of God or who God is, we love ourselves, we take care of ourselves, we look after ourselves for the sake of ourselves. It's a very selfish love. The second one, though, is that when we are, when we are introduced to God, we begin to love God for ourselves. We love God and seek after God for the benefit of ourselves. And he says that in this fallen world that we live in, it's very difficult to just skip past this step. That typically when we begin following Jesus, it often begins with a reason that benefits us. This is clearly where the crowd is at. They are following after Jesus. They are seeking after him for the benefit of themselves because of something that they get out of it. What I think Jesus is pushing them toward in this conversation is to love God for the sake of God. 
To love God because in and of himself, God is supremely beautiful. To love God just for what he can do, period, not for what he can do that benefits you. Now, I don't have time to get to the fourth one. It's actually pretty cool. It's, uh, he, Bernard argues that eventually we can love ourselves for the sake of God. It's, if you're intrigued by that, I'd recommend looking it up. It's, it's an incredible, complex thought. Uh, but what we do see here, what's clear, is that the motives of this crowd following after Jesus is not good. Their motives are what do we get out of it. And I think Jesus challenges this. And if he challenges it, I think we need to challenge ourselves in this today as well. Why do we follow Jesus? And my pursuit of Jesus began because I was enamored, I was amazed by this idea of forgiveness. This idea of everything that I had done in my life could be forgiven by Jesus. That he had the power and the authority to do that. But, but think about my motives. Think about my motives. I wasn't following Jesus because of what he could do, because of this great forgiveness that he had. I was following Jesus because of what he could do for me. The fact that he could forgive me. That's where my pursuit began. And you could say that that was loving God for the sake of myself. So while it's tough to skip that step, we often begin there. We, we seek after God for a selfish motivation. Jesus challenges you have to get beyond that. You have to move to loving God just for who God is. And so my question is, if you are in the crowd's position right now, if after the, the searching of after Jesus that you've done in your life, if you hypothetically met Jesus on a seaside today, what would his response to you be? Would it, would it be, wow, way to go. You, you know who I am and you're following me because of all, all that I am and all that I can do. Or would his response be like what he says to this crowd, you're only following me because of what I can do for you. I think that's a, a profound question to reflect on. Now, while, while Jesus starts this conversation by, by calling into question their motives and then challenging their motives in the first place, he, he continues and he takes the conversation a different direction. Keep reading with me in verse 27. He says, do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus tells the crowd, don't work for this food that perishes. Instead, receive this, this food that's going to well up to eternal life. And notice the difference between work and receive. Don't work for this food. God's going to give you this food that endures to eternal life. And it's clear at this point, Jesus is taking this conversation beyond the physical. At this point, we've been talking about physical bread. Now he's talking about eternal life. He's taking this conversation in a different direction. And so when they ask him, well, okay, what do we have to do to get this bread? What must we do? Jesus' response is, all you have to do, believe in the one whom God has sent. Believe in the one whom God has sent. And it's clear the crowd knows, oh, he's claiming to be the one God has sent based on, based on their response. Look at verse 30. They ask him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? So they're, they're, he's claiming to be the one God has sent. 
So they say, what are you going to do? What sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? In verse 31, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. You see why I parked on the miracle that had just happened the day before. Because your question should be, well, they're, they're wanting a miracle. They're wanting God, uh, Jesus, in this moment to do something miraculous, to prove that he's been sent by God. Yes, this was the same crowd that just one chapter earlier had witnessed him do the miraculous, had witnessed him feed 5,000 people. So either they've forgotten about it or, I think more likely, they just want him to do it again. They just want more from him. And so they bring up Moses. Why don't you rain bread down from the heavens like Moses did? Now, if you don't know, Moses was a hero to this culture. Moses was someone they definitely believed was sent by God. And so they say to Jesus, you want us to believe you're sent by God? You got to do what he did. And so what did he do? If you don't know the story, Moses led the, Israel, the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And so God used him in miraculous ways. All these things happened. And, and Moses brings his people out of Egypt. And now he's bringing them toward the promised land. The land that God has promised to give to them. But there's this in-between period. God had called them out of Egypt and, and towards the promised land, but they're not there yet. They're on this journey through the wilderness, and it's difficult. It, it's hard. It's uncomfortable. And they, they begin to complain. The Israelites are, are hungry and eventually get to the point where they say to Moses, why didn't you just leave us in slavery in Egypt? I mean, you got to wonder how bad do they get that they, they want to go back to being slaves. So they complain and they complain. And eventually, God has a conversation with Moses in Exodus 16. It, it looks like this. The Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. Now, just an aside, I love this. You see, in this moment, the Israelites, they're complaining. God had done these amazing things, led them out of this, out of this, this terrible place, and they begin complaining against him. And God could have, he could have told them, oh, suck it up. Oh, how, how, do, you not, how do you not realize everything that I've done for you? He, he could have had a, had a pity party, but instead, God looks at them, sees where they are, comes down, meets them where they are, and provides for them. And I, I just thought that was profound this week. But I have a question for you, all right? And I want you to answer, answer with me here. I promise this is, an, this is an easy one. Question, who, who in this verse, who is the one providing the bread from heaven? God. God. Uh, Follow-up question, easier question, I promise. Is Moses the one providing the bread in this passage? No. Well, well, read along with me because Jesus has to remind them of this in, in verse 32. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it was my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And notice their response in verse 34. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Always give us that bread that you're talking about. Again, on the surface, we might be impressed with this crowd. Oh, they're getting it now. They, they finally got it. But their response is the exact same response as the woman at the well just two chapters 
earlier. It shows us that they're still thinking physical bread. If you don't know the story of the woman at the well, it's just two chapters before in John chapter 4 where this woman is, is at this well and she's trying to get water and she has to do this day after day after day and she's exhausted and tired and Jesus approaches her and, and he says to her, look, I, I've got a water for you, but this water that I can give you, it's a living water. And if you drink the water I give you, you'll never be thirsty again. And, and her response is the same exact response as the crowd in this moment. She says, sir, always give me this water. And what we find in that story is that Jesus has to redirect the conversation because she's still thinking he's going to give me physical water. But he's talking about something different, something much deeper, much better. But she didn't get it. I, I think it's the same thing here. They're still thinking, oh, he's going to do it. He's, he's going to bring down bread from the heavens. We're going to eat again. And so Jesus has to completely flip the conversation in verse 35. And read with me. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, a while back we did a series called Pixelated. Uh, where we looked at Old Testament stories and, and dissected them so that we could see how they ultimately point to Jesus. And there were some obscure stories and some weird stories, but in them we found deep truth about who Jesus was and how it pointed towards him. And, and this is another clear story that illustrates that. This manna that, that fell down from the heavens clearly pointed to Jesus. The bread that fell down from heaven and, and met this basic need for this one group of people, pointed towards a different bread that would come down from heaven and meet the deepest needs of all people. It pointed to Jesus. And the funny thing about this, it was the crowd that brought this up in the first place. The, the crowd was saying, hey, if you want us to believe you were sent by God, you got to do what Moses did. And Jesus responds in that moment, well, well, funny that you bring up Moses. Funny that you bring up this story of the manna. Because that story pointed to me. I am the bread of life that's going to come down and give life to the world. Now, I want to finish by looking at a key phrase. One that comes up again and again and again in the gospel of John. Yeah, it comes up a couple times in this chapter and before and after. Sometimes it's Jesus saying it. Sometimes it's the writer John saying it about Jesus. It's this phrase, believes in me. Belief in Jesus. We just saw it in verse 35, John 6. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Whoever believes in me. How do we experience this hunger-satisfying life that Jesus is talking about? Well, he just says you have to believe in me. Which I think begs the question in our, in our modernized culture, what is belief? Because I, I think the way that we view the, the word belief and the idea of belief is, is very different than they did. Now this is a, a Greek word, pistuo. This word gets translated to belief. 
And it, it's much more uh, complex than our idea of belief, I think. You see, belief in their context, in their culture, was to have faith in something. To have confidence in something. So much so that you would be willing to entrust yourself completely to that thing. So much faith and so much confidence that you would entrust yourself to that thing. I think it's very different than our idea of belief. I think in our modern way of thinking, our modern culture, when we think of belief, we think of merely acknowledging something to be true. Do, do you believe that two plus two equals four? Well, yeah, I acknowledge that to be true. I believe it. We use this word so differently. My question is, what if belief, what if our idea of belief, our understanding of what it means to believe in something went past acknowledging something to be true and instead meant entrusting oneself completely to that thing? What if it went past just acknowledging, I acknowledge who Jesus is, but instead I'm going to entrust completely. That's my belief. There was a guy in the 1800s by the name of Charles Blondin. Charles Blondin, he was a French tightrope walker. And one of his most favorite acts was he would tightrope across Niagara Falls on a rope that was 11,000 feet wide and, and was 160 feet over the falls. And he would do this over and over. He would do it with different variations. He went across on a bicycle. He went across on stilts. He went across this blindfolded. It, it was amazing. Then one time, uh, there was this huge crowd that had gathered to, to watch him go across this rope. And, and he had a, a wheelbarrow. And, and he said, do, do you, to the crowd, do you believe me that I can get across this rope with a wheelbarrow? And the crowd goes crazy. Of course he can do it. We've seen him do this with, with way more difficult acts. Uh, of course, they, they ooh and they ah. And, and so he asked a follow-up question. Do you, do you think that I could do it? Do you believe I can do it with someone in the wheelbarrow? They're all, of course. Of course you can. Of course we believe in you, Charles. So he turns to the crowd and he asked them the, the very reasonable follow-up question. Who's going to get in a wheelbarrow? You believe in me, I can do it. Who's going to get in? To, to nobody's surprise, nobody got in. Their belief in him was challenged. It was a mere acknowledgement of, yes, we think you can do it. It was not a, I have so much faith in you. I have so much confidence in you that I will entrust myself completely to you. What I, what I love about the analogy is how scary that would be. Is anybody not a fan of heights in here? Anybody with me on that? I'm not being facetious. The highest I go is this stage. I, I do not do heights. So I hear that analogy and it's like, yeah, I believe in him. I believe uh, our version of belief, I'll acknowledge, yeah, I think he can do it, but there's no way I'm getting in that wheelbarrow. That's not going to happen. Will you get in the wheelbarrow? No one says yes. I think this is a great analogy when it comes to this idea of pistuo belief. This belief in Jesus. He says he can offer life, that 
that those who believe in him never hunger nor thirst. And I, and I think he can do it. Yeah, he, he can't just, just bear the weight of one person in a wheelbarrow. I think he can bear the weight of all of humanity when he says he can offer life to those who believe in him. And so I, I think this is a simple visual. I think it's an easy analogy, but it, it really does ask this question. Where in our lives today, where in our lives have we simply acknowledged Jesus? Yeah, I believe who he says he is. Instead of entrusting ourselves completely to him. Where have, where have we simply acknowledged him instead of entrusting ourselves completely to him? In, in other words, wherever we said, yeah, I, I believe he can do it. I believe he can offer life. But we haven't gotten in the wheelbarrow. Yeah, I was thinking about this week, and I, I was thinking about examples of this, examples of this in my life. But instead, I, I was praying, God, would, would you just bring to mind what that looks like for each of us? I could go on with different examples of what this looks like. But no, God, would you reveal to us where have we acknowledged you, but we haven't entrusted you? Where, where is this true of us? Where have we said, I'm not getting in the wheelbarrow? I think Jesus can carry all of our weight. And he is the bread of life that will sustain and will satisfy. Now I'll finish with a quote from, uh, from Francis Maloney. He's a, a Bible scholar who wrote a commentary on the book of John. And he says this, no longer will Moses or the manna provide sufficient nourishment. Instead, Jesus, the bread of life, will satisfy the deepest needs of humankind. Jesus will satisfy the deepest needs of humankind. And so I'm going to invite the band up and we're going to finish with a, a time of communion. We're going to celebrate communion together. And, and to set that up, I want to read over you the last little bit of John chapter 6. And, and Jesus closes out this chapter talking about his flesh and his blood being sacrificed for us. And I want to preface this section. You have to hear me here that this section is weird. All right? In fact, it's so weird that many of the people who are following Jesus at this point stopped following Jesus because of what he says right here. He's talking about his flesh and his blood and eating his flesh and his blood. And people were taking that literally. Today we know that when Jesus talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he's, he's talking about eating the bread at communion at the Last Supper where he takes this bread and he breaks it and he says, this represents my body which will be broken for you. And he passes them the, the cup and he says, this represents my blood which will be shed for you. Jesus being the bread of life meant ultimately he would lay his life down. And so as, as we read this, as we talk about the flesh and the blood, we remember that these are symbolic elements. And that when we take part in communion, we are celebrating what he's done. We are remembering him. And at the very end of John 6, it says when we do this, we remain in him and he remains in us. And what's really cool, if, if you pay attention to these verses at the end of John, 
I, I think they reveal just how seriously Jesus takes this illustration that he is the bread of life. Read with me, John 6, 51 through 56. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I remain in them. Today we celebrate the, the thirst quenching, the hunger satisfying life of Jesus. And we take the bread and we remember that represents his body broken for us. And we take the cup and know that it represents his blood shed for us. So let's pray together and then we'll celebrate communion. Jesus, we, we thank you that as we read this, this passage, we learn in this time of communion, God, you remain with us. We remain with you. There is community in this place. Jesus, we thank you for the truth that you are the bread of life and that to be the bread of life, you would be willing to lay your life down for us. Jesus, you want to satisfy our deepest needs. God, you want to quench our thirsts. God, you want to satisfy our hungers. You say, what, what must we do? We just must believe in you. And I pray for every person in this room, God, that you would draw us into a deeper belief in who you are, God, that we would move from merely acknowledging who you are to deeply entrusting ourselves to you. Because God, you are trustworthy and you deserve all that we are and all that we have. Would you draw us closer to you? Jesus, we celebrate who you are and what you've done in your name.